Now, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to uh, John chapter 17. John chapter 17, and the very last section uh, we'll read uh, from verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own inspired word. Well, this morning we come to our last study on the subject of the church. Now, when we started back in September, I didn't honestly intend to go on so long. But when you start a subject like that, it's hard to know when you stop. Uh, As Alex indicated, he and I are heading to the Shepherds Conference, uh, and this Sunday seemed a good place to draw things to a conclusion. And uh, I want to finish on a positive and an important note, which is the unity of the church. As you have no doubt detected as we've gone through these Uh, studies. I'm a Baptist by conviction, but that doesn't mean to say that I don't respect those from other traditions and have other convictions. And I hope you can see the difference between those two things. When I preached on baptism a little while ago, I was visiting somebody's house and they were asking me, did I know a relative of theirs who was a Presbyterian minister? And then they stopped and interrupted and said, sorry, you, you don't like Presbyterians, do you? Uh, My closest friends are Presbyterian ministers, and uh, we have so much in common, but that love and respect doesn't, on the one hand, cause me, here's the pun, to water down my Baptist convictions, or on the other, to hinder my fellowship with them uh, in any way. And you will know that uh, my good friend, Mark Johnson, a Presbyterian minister, preached at my induction here four and a half years ago. And, uh, and last year, I had the joy of preaching at his installation in Rich Hill. So this morning, thinking about this unity of the church, I want to turn to the section that we read in John 17. This is, this John 17, the Lord's Prayer. We often think of the Lord's Prayer as uh, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be uh, your name. That is not the Lord's Prayer. That is the disciples' prayer where the Lord is giving his disciples a model to teach them uh, uh, on how to pray. But this is the Lord's Prayer. This uh, is his prayer to his Father for um, his church. And he prays for his disciples uh, and up until 
verse 19, he's praying for them. In verse 20, he widens his prayer to include all Christians in all of time. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also that they, uh, for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's praying in this last section for every generation of Christians until the second coming of Christ. I want you to notice seven things this morning, and we'll rattle through them very quickly, so don't panic. Uh, First of all, the desire for Christian unity. Our Lord prays that we may be one, verse 21, that they all may be one. The great burden of our Lord, when he in omniscience looks down from his day to the second His glorious second coming is that the church that he has purchased with his blood may be one. And if that was his prayer to his father, it's obviously his desire for the church that they all may be one. And if our Lord desired it and prayed for it, how can we ignore it or remain indifferent to it? If sin is to do that which runs contrary to the revealed will of God, then we sin if we ignore this desire of Jesus that they all may be one. That's the first thing then, the desire for Christian unity. The second thing is the basis of Christian unity. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only but for those who will believe in me through their word. The unity that Jesus desired is not some organized unity that includes anyone or anything that professes the name of Christ. Jesus is praying for an evangelical unity, a unity that will embrace only those who have believed the apostolic word, who have believed in Jesus and the word that he, the apostles, gave. Those who have believed in me through their message, says the NIV, word, says the ESV. Now that's important. Because the first mistake of the modern ecumenical movement is that in the desire to see uh, our Lord's will um, fulfilled, uh, they reduce all doctrines and distinctions to the lowest possible denominator and try and get a formula of doctrine that includes everyone within Christendom. So you have on the one hand liberals who deny the supernatural origin and content of the gospel. They deny the virgin birth. They deny the uh, miracles of Jesus. They deny the resurrection. So on the one hand, you have these anti-supernatural liberals who seek to demythologize, in their words, the Bible. And then on the other hand, you have Uh, Catholics, Roman Catholics, who try to um, add traditions and ceremonies that veil the gospel itself. Now, that is not what Jesus is praying for. He is praying for those who will believe in him through the apostolic word. If you just turn back to John 16 and verse 12, 
in the same discourse, Jesus has given this um, uh, wonderful uh, promise, John uh, 16 and verse 12. He says to the disciples, to the apostles, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will speak on his own authority. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, uh, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that come to you. So here's this wonderful promise given to the apostles that when the Spirit comes, he will lead them into all truth. He will lay down a foundation of truth to the apostles. And it's that foundation of truth that is the basis of the unity that Jesus is praying for. So uh, those who deny the historic gospel are not included in this prayer. The desire for Christian unity, the basis of Christian unity, the extent uh, in Christian unity. Look at what Jesus says there in verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now that's a remarkable statement. He prays for the uh, unity among true believers that that unity might reflect the unity of the persons of the Godhead. And so close and so intimate is the relationship between the Father and the Son that there is interpenetration between them. That the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. There are three distinct persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet there is one God. But so close and so intimate is the relationship that the Father has with the Son, that the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. And that was the catastrophe of the cross. Because when Jesus cried out, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That intimacy, that inner penetration was disrupted at that point. When he who knew no sin was made sin for us. Now it's that intimacy of fellowship between the Father and the Son where the uh, relationship is so amazingly close that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. That is the model or the pattern for the love that ought to exist between true Christians. This is the desire of the Lord Jesus, the head of the church, verse 23, that they may be perfectly one. Complete unity, the NIV says in verse 23. That the oneness in the Godhead this is staggering, might be the oneness of true believers. Now, if Jesus prayed for it and desired it, how can we dismiss it? It ought to be the object of every true Christian to promote the unity of the church. J.C. Ryle says, Let us bear much, concede much, and put up with much before we plunge into secessions and separations. Churches can divide over the most trivial uh, of reasons, over secondary issues. There's a group in America known as the Black Bumper Mennonites. And when you go to their church, you can see that above, above the door, the Black Bumper Mennonites. And it's a puzzle to many how they got that name. But when Chrome 
uh, became fashionable on cars in the 1950s. They thought it was worldly. They separated from the original body and they called themselves the Black Bumper Mennonites. Discord and division, separation and schism ought to be a great source of grief to every Christian. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, said, Discord and division become no Christian. For wolves to worry lambs is no wonder. But for one lamb to worry another is unnatural and monstrous. In our own church, we've got to realize that those who sow division are sinning against the Lord. Whenever you hear criticism of another member or stirring up of discord, that should horrify you. Uh, as much as if they used an expletive or as if they were caught breaking their marriage vows. This unity is not just wrong, it's sin. It's to go against Christ's desire for his church. The desire for Christian unity, the basis of Christian uh, unity, the extent in Christian unity. The third thing uh, I want you to notice is the nature uh, of Christian unity. What is this unity? Well, I think it's important for us to understand that unity is not uniformity. Look again at verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now, you see that phrase, just as, in Greek. It's a very strong connection, even as the authorized version says. It's equivalent in Greek to an equal sign. It means equal to, parallel with, commensurate with. That our love to one another should parallel the love and unity between the Father and the Son. Now, the Father and the Son are one, one in nature, one in essence, one in purpose, but they are not the same. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. In redemption, they have different roles. The Son took the subordinate position. He took the very nature of a servant, was made in human likeness, and being fashioned as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, Paul tells us. I think that's important. Jesus is praying for unity, but he's not praying for uniformity. You see, the, the aim of the modern ecumenical movement is to have one church. But there is one church. It's the universal church to which every true Christian who is truly converted belongs. It's not an organizational unity Jesus is praying for, but a unity of purpose that we will see in a moment. So people complain about denominations, and they see denominations as a, a great catastrophe. I don't see them as a catastrophe. We have differences, legitimate differences over biblical uh, understanding and biblical interpretation, differences on church government, differences on baptism, on the order of salvation, on the second coming, on worship. I don't think God wants us to weaken our convictions. He wants us to be people of conviction that are fully persuaded in our own minds and uh, fully persuaded as churches. The unity that Jesus is praying for is a unity that respects and tolerates and allows other differences. I'm a Baptist by conviction. I believe in the 
that the Baptist church order is the closest uh, church order to um, what we read in the New Testament. But that's my conviction. But other people hold different convictions. I don't agree with them. But they have come to those convictions legitimately through the study of the Word of God. They are the Lord's people, and I am one with them. And so without compromise in any way, I have no hesitation in, in giving expression to the oneness that we have in Christ Jesus. Brian Edwards, I said this before, very helpfully divides truth into four categories. He says there is essential truth, truths that you need to believe in order to be a true Christian, like the Trinity, like the inspiration of Scripture, like the virgin birth, like the resurrection, like the miracles of Jesus, like the historical accuracy of Scripture, like justification by faith, how a person is made right with God. Martin Luther said, justification by faith alone in Christ alone is the doctrine by which a church stands or falls. So there are essential truths that make and define a Christian. Then there are important truths truths that are important to us, like church order, like baptism, like election, like uh, the authority and the finality of Scripture. Those things are important to us. And then there is secondary truth. When I talk about secondary truth, it's truth that Christians have disagreed on in churches for generations, like the second coming, like styles of worship. Those are secondary truths. And then he has phantom truths, things that we think are true, but are not true at all. They're not, well, they they may be personal preferences, but they're not convictions like versions of the Bible and traditions that we observe, that there, there is no basis for them in Scripture itself. And we need to understand that those essential truths that the final gospel, even though we disagree with people on secondary truths, that those essential truths are what makes us true Christians. So the desire for Christian unity, the basis of Christian unity, the extent in Christian unity, the nature of Christian unity, uh, fifthly, the reason for Christian unity. Look at verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The world may believe that you have sent me. Look at verse 23. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now there are people who come to this passage and they say, well, Jesus is uh, praying for a spiritual unity. It's spiritual unity that he has in mind, and it doesn't matter if there's any tangible expression of that actual unity. And it is true that we are one with every true Christian, that we are all one in Christ Jesus. But it is also true that Jesus desires a visible expression of that unity. Otherwise, how would the world see that unity in order to believe? Now, this is important. The unity of believers is a very powerful witness to the gospel itself. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. 
And the opposite is true. Division and disruption are detrimental to the testimony of the church, uh, uh, local church in any area, but the universal church uh, as well. The Puritan John Newton said, How much our blessed Savior and his gospel suffer by hot contentions of those who call themselves saints. You see, when the world sees different people drawn from different backgrounds, socially, educationally, even religiously meeting together, blending their lives together, working harmoniously together, the gospel then itself, which is the glue that brings those people together, becomes powerfully attractive. We live in a divided world, white against black, East against West, rich against poor, Catholic against Protestant, Jew against Arab. But when the world sees people from these different backgrounds united in the gospel, uh, worshipping in the same church, the gospel itself becomes wonderfully appealing. And on the other hand, when the world sees division, disruption, the world feels that the church has nothing to offer them. Preparation I read of a church in America some years ago that had a major split. Eventually they sorted out their differences and they had a service of reconciliation to bring them together. The next day one of the members was met by a non-Christian who used to attend the church at the time of the trouble. And the non-Christian woman uh, said, I heard your good news. And the lady invited her back to church and she was subsequently converted and she heard, she heard the good news before she hadn't heard the good news. But then she heard the good news. The trouble prevented her from hearing the good news. And what's true of a church individually is true uh, with the universal church corporately. I remember driving to a, a conference with four of my friends. Sounds like a joke, you know, a priest, a rabbi, and a minister go into a pub. But there was, in this taxi, he decided to, it was cheaper to get a taxi to the venue, which was quite a way away. But when we divided it up, it was cheaper than the train. And there was a Reformed Presbyterian, there was a Presbyterian, there was a Congregationalist, and there was uh, me, a, a, a Baptist. And uh, the man asked us, the taxi driver asked us what we were doing, and we were able to say, you know, that we were going to a minister's conference and uh, and then he uh, asked what church we were from, and I said, "Oh, we're we're all from different churches." And he was shocked, shocked that we were all from different churches, and uh, we were able to say, "But we have Christ in common. We have the gospel in common." And for about an hour and a half, we had the the privilege of sharing the gospel with that tax driver, uh, taxi driver right up uh, to uh, the venue of the, the conference. Division prevents the hearing of the good news. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. It's a great burden to me that Christian people will talk to non-Christians about church problems. I, I believe that's so wrong. It, it should never be mentioned. In fact, for Christian parents to talk to uh, each other 
in front of their children about church problems confirms them in their unbelief. I think that's so wrong. Unity is essential because unity is a very powerful witness to an unbelieving world. That's the reason for Christian unity, the desire for Christian unity. Remember, this is the prayer of the Lord. So it's his desire, the basis of Christian unity, the extent of Christian unity, the nature of Christian unity, the reason for Christian unity. Sixthly, then, the key to Christian unity. Jesus has made it clear that the unity that he desires is a spiritual unity rather than a mechanical unity. In other words, it's not something that can be manufactured or imposed. It's something that springs from the heart. And he says the key to promoting this unity is a knowledge of God. Look at verse 26. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. These believers had come to know God. Now that's not uh, in the uh, NIV, that word no, but, but no, um, sorry, no is in the NIV. It's, it's the word name that's not in the NIV. And remember the word name uh, is, is not just uh, a means of identification in the Bible. It's a summary of the, the person. The person is known by their name. And so to come to know his name means that you come to, to understand him, that you come to appreciate him, that you come to know who he is and what he's like. The word know uh, there uh, is more than intellectual apprehension. It's the biblical word know uh, conveys a sense of intimacy with it. So Adam knew his wife Eve. Um, Amos says, uh, God says through Amos to, uh, to Israel, you only of the nations of the world have I known. That, now he knows all the nations of the world, but there was intimacy uh, between them. So Jesus is saying that the key for promoting this unity among believers is a growth in your knowledge of God. Now that's the exact opposite of the modern ecumenical movement because the modern ecumenical movement says that you, you, you reduce uh, truth to its lowest possible common, common denominator and then you come together, whereas Jesus is saying, no, you maximize truth you come to know his name, you know all about him, and as you come to know him, love grows. That's the key to loving one another. The key to loving one another is getting to know God better, to understanding who God is and what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. And as you grow in your knowledge, and remember it's not just head knowledge, it's this intimacy 
that's included as well. As you grow in your relationship and your understanding of God, then unity comes. And yes, that involves growing in your knowledge of Scripture, growing in your understanding, growing uh, in your uh, knowledge of theology, because as you get to know God better, unity comes. That's the opposite to the way the world thinks, which is everything down to the possible common, lowest possible common denominator, and then let's get together. No, no, let's maximize truth. Let's grow in our relationship with God because our growing in our knowledge of God is the key to Christian unity. So if you have trouble loving your fellow Christians, your brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe even angry towards them, Could it be that you don't know God? That you're not a Christian? Or could it be that you don't know God enough? Your relationship has turned sour with your brothers and sisters in Christ because your relationship has turned sour with God. The key to Christian unity, you don't love them because you don't love Him. The desire for Christian unity, the basis of Christian unity, the um, extent in Christian unity, the nature of Christian unity, the reason of Christian unity, the key to Christian unity, and last of all, the perfection of Christian uh, unity. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. My commentators are baffled as to why verse 24 is inserted here. Jesus asked that those who the Father has given him might be with him. Remember, this is just before his death. He's anticipating his death. He's anticipating his entrance into glory, that they might be with him in order to see his glory. He speaks of heaven and his desire that the believers will be brought safely into heaven. And surely we have got to ask ourselves then, why would Jesus pray about heaven when he's praying about the unity of his people? Well, if you look up to verse 24 is that they might see his glory. If you look back to verse 22, sorry. uh, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one. So this, this glory that Jesus had given them is the key to this unity. And here Jesus prays, that they might be with him ultimately in heaven to see that glory. I want all that you have given me to be brought safely into heaven that they may gaze upon my glory and so experience perfect unity. That heaven is a place of perfection and perfect harmony and perfect love and perfect unity is to be found within its walls. You know the apocryphal story um, about heaven that somebody dies and goes to heaven and they're being shown around by St. Peter and uh, they pass one room and there's a terrible racket going on and he says, who's in there? They're the Pentecostals. 
making all the noise, clapping and so on. And then they pass another room and there's smells and bells coming out, you know. And who's in there? It's the Anglicans in there. And then they pass another room. The Presbyterians are there and there's a sound of preaching coming out. And then they pass a, another room and St. Peter goes, shh. Who's in there? It's the Irish Baptists. They think they're the only ones here. Well, how, how wrong that is. Because all those divisions are going to be rendered null and void as we behold his glory. What theologians call the visio deo. The vision of God. And as we look upon God and behold his glory, every distinction will fall. Jonathan Edwards, the great um, American theologian, described heaven as a world of love. And it's a world of love because we behold the glory of God. Wesley's great hymn, Love Like Death, um, uh, has all destroyed, rendered all distinctions void, names and sex, uh, sex and party fall. Thy, O Christ, is all in all. This is our destiny. We're going to gaze upon his glory and all distinctions and divisions and distractions will fade away. And we will be one in Christ Jesus. It's a marvelous thing that we're going to behold his glory and every distinction will be banished when we have that vision of God. And if that's our goal, and if that's our aim, surely we should seek to give visible manifestation to that unity here on earth. And that's why I'm on a minister's fraternal that's interdenominational, Evangelical Fellowship of Ireland. That's why I serve on the Council of UFM, uh, uh, Interdenominational Missionary Society. Um, that's why I have no hesitation in bringing true believers from other denominations to preach from this pulpit. Because because we want to give visible expression to the unity that we have in Christ Jesus. Amen.